We're going to be in Isaiah 39. So Isaiah 39 is the end of the, the section in the middle of Isaiah that's narrative. So, if we can remember, Isaiah 1 through 5 tells us we have a problem. God has an expectation, we fall short of that expectation, right? Uh, New Testament says it another way, it says, for all fall short of the glory of God, right? We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So there's, there is an expectation from God, and we have a failure to meet that expectation. That's the first five chapters of Isaiah. So there's a challenge laid out by Isaiah. How does this rebellious, obstinate, uh, disobedient people become the people that can honor and please God? How does that happen? Uh, chapter 6 tells us the solution. Chapter 6 is where Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, his train filled the temple, and God purges Isaiah's sin. Right? He takes his sin away. So you have this picture of Isaiah having his sin removed and then being empowered by God for service as a prophet of God to go and do whatever God was calling him to do. So you get in the first six chapters the answer to the question. Now, from 7 to 12, you have this question that's being asked by Isaiah. Will you trust in God or will you trust in Assyria? Remember, Assyria in the beginning of Isaiah was the up-and-coming power, and if you wanted to have help against your littler enemies, Assyria was a, a big bully to have in your backyard, right? So you could have their protection. But what we know about Assyria is if you asked for Assyrian protection, you ended up under Assyrian rule. Does that make sense? So the prophet is saying, who will you trust? Will you trust God? To give you deliverance from these littler guys, or will you trust Assyria? That's 7 through 13. 13 to 35, he asked this question. Will you trust God? Because you need to know the idea that trusting God is a prerequisite for being the servant of God. And if you're going to be pleasing to God, if you're going to live lives that match up to God's plan and purpose for our life, then that's a part of that call, to be his servants, that we are servants of God. How does Paul begin his letters? Paul, a doulos, right? Servant, slave of God, someone who has bowed the knee. So 13 to 35 asks that question. Well, if you want to be a servant of God, you got to trust him. So then you have the test. 36 through 39 is the test. Hezekiah is the king. Hezekiah, are you going to trust God or are you going to trust Assyria? Remember, Assyrians come against him. Hezekiah calls out for the Lord's deliverance. God delivers. The angel of the Lord comes, wipes out 185,000 soldiers one night, right? So God showed he's worthy of our trust. Now in chapter 39, the, the illustration that we see in chapter 39 is... Even though God is worthy of our trust, it's a whole nother matter to get people to live lives actually trusting Him. Right? Have you ever known what to do and not done it? Have you ever known what you should do and not done it? And so if we have that same idea, that same concept working through, then we want to uh, acknowledge, recognize, okay, so... 
we want to not only understand that God is worthy of trust more than Assyria, and that God is worthy of trust if I'm really going to be a servant of God, someone who has bowed the knee, then I'm someone who's trusting in God, right? That's faith. We're justified by faith, right? Because we trust God. We trust God for our salvation. We trust God for our protection. We trust God for His covering. So, so we trust God that makes us a servant of God. Then, then my life ought to look like it. Now, if you remember, I don't remember when it was. I think it was a Sunday, a couple Sundays ago. I told the wheelbarrow story. You guys remember? Were any of you guys here for that? Sorry, Joe's unhappy. So, yeah, it's only going to get worse. Don't listen. I'll try to talk louder. So, we, I talked about the wheelbarrow story. And saying the words, oh yeah, I believe you can take the wheelbarrow from here over the Niagara Falls. I believe you can do it. I got the easy part over with, right? I said, I, I can get it from there. But then, the hard part is when the guy walking the tie rope says, okay, get in the wheelbarrow. Now, now it's different altogether. But, if the words are true, do the actions follow? And how many times in our life is God saying to us, get in the wheelbarrow? Will you get in the wheel? Do you trust me? So chapter 39, the last part of the narrative, looking at Hezekiah's life, Hezekiah's life becomes like an illustration of, okay, you're, you're, you're not horrible, but you're not good. You're, you're, you fall short. You have, you struggle in your trust. And this is what Man really looks like, right? That's the square, 36, 37, 38, 39. So 39 is, is giving us that question, laying out the, the ideas of what's going on. So in 39, verse 1, he picks it up. It says, At the time, Merodach Baladin, the son of Baladin, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah. For he had heard that he had been sick and had recovered. So you remember last week, Hezekiah found out he was going to die. Remember? And Hezekiah was pretty shook up. Yeah, he, he, he prayed, he told God, look, I've, I've done my best to serve you. And then he turns his back, faces the wall and, and cries, right? And God heard his cry and gave him 15 more years. So we have God's, God's healing of Hezekiah. Now, the, the second biggest power on earth heard about it. So if you go back to the idea of the ancient world, Assyria is top dog, okay? So Assyria is, if, if, like if you consider the United States top dog, Assyria is the United States. So whatever you would think is second, that's Babylon. Babylon's the second most powerful and one of the chief uh nations coming against Assyria, pushing to end their rule, and ultimately we're going to see that kingdom become the, the second major kingdom, right after Assyria is going to come Babylon. So, so they hear about Hezekiah. Now, Judah is little. It's tiny. Babylon is humongous. So you have this giant country, superpower, and they're like excited to come talk to this little Judean king who they heard was sick and got better. So they send letter, they send gifts, and behind it all, 
is a plan to work on, hey, you want to join together with us when we try to push Assyria out? You know, we're, we're the next guys coming on the scene. And so these are the guys who are coming to, to Hezekiah, Merodach, Baladin. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly. And he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. So they come to see him and they come to think about, you know, hey, maybe we can work something out, you know. Really, Babylon doesn't need them. Judah's little. Right? That'd be like saying, you know, the the United States is going to go to war like we did out in the desert, right? We're going to go to war and we're going out into Iraq and we need somebody else's help. Did you guys watch it on the news? Yeah, in case you didn't watch it, we didn't need anybody's help. Right? Everybody's laying down their arms, giving up. That's how that went. That was not... The, the difficulty of war is not the main battles. The main battles are easy. The difficulty is ruling after you won. That's where the problems happen, right? Isn't that what happened in Vietnam? We not, do we not learn... We didn't learn the lesson of Russia and Afghanistan. Russia conquered Afghanistan... But they couldn't rule it because the people were unruly, kind of like the Romans trying to rule over Israel. They're always wanting to start a ruckus, right? You can fight against a big army. What you can't fight against is the little guy throwing a firebomb on you while you're walking down the street. You don't have no defense for that. So that's, so, so Babylon doesn't need Judah, doesn't need them, but for whatever reason, they've come. Now, we want to kind of understand a little bit about why this is a big deal when we look at Isaiah 39. So we're going to flip over to 2 Chronicles 32, 31. You have parallel accounts of Hezekiah and Kings, Chronicles, and Isaiah. So in 2 Chronicles 32, 31, here's what it says. And so in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon, who had been sent to him, Hezekiah, to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land. Remember, he was healed from being almost being dead. God left him to himself in order to test him to know all that was in his heart. So Hezekiah, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna back up a little bit here and I'm gonna let you handle this. I'm gonna let you do what you, what, whatever's in your heart to do. And the purpose is not so God will know. God already knows, right? God is not shocked by our behavior. You don't do something and God goes, oh my gosh, I never saw that coming. No, God knows. It, when we fail, who is the message for? It's for me. So that I know who I am. Because more often than not, we have a very elevated view of self. We can see the problems in everybody else, but it's more difficult, right? To see my own failure, my own struggle, to recognize some of those things. So in Second Chronicles, God says, look, I'm, I'm going to let you figure this out. And there's no doubt Hezekiah is super excited. Can you tell? He's super excited to be being visited by a world power. He's super excited to, to have somebody so important in the world scene care about little Judah, isn't he? 
And I know he's excited about it because what did he do? He's tried to show off. Right? Remember when you were, fellas, when you were a young boy and the girl you liked came over? You didn't show off? You didn't see how far you could jump that motorcycle? No? Or see how hard you could punch that dude that you were pretty sure you could take and she'd think you were her knight in shining armor? Whatever things are built into a man, when, when we are excited about showing ourselves off well, we take it to the nines. Oh man, let me show you what I can do. There's just one problem with it. Do you know what it is? When we do that, we're walking in pride. And we're, what we're really doing, I mean, the honest, if we're honest, if we can be honest, we're family, we should be able to be honest with each other. We, um, when we do that, we're really putting on the mask to cover who we really are. No? We want to we wanna show ourselves to be something better than what somebody else will think. So, so I can, anybody can pretend for a while. Ladies, when do you find out who your husband is for real? If, while you're dating? No, while you're dating, you're pretty sure. I, I know who this guy is. Look what he Man, he brings me flowers all the time and little candies, sweet little notes he writes. Oh, my gosh, he's... Sweet, sweet, sweet. And then you get married and you find out who he really is. Oh. Oh, he's just another dirtbag. Yeah. He is, but he's your dirtbag now. He's all yours. And we, but, but that's what we do. And that's the same thing Hezekiah is doing. Now, here's what the opportunity that was presented was what he could have done with it. Rather than showing all his wealth off, rather than showing his power, which was not very much, rather than showing all the things that would indicate that he was a good, worthy king, he could have talked about how good God was. How God delivered the people from the Assyrians, right? He could have testified of those things. He could have testified of how God had healed them. He could have. There's a lot of things he could have done before or other than putting on the boast. The boast kind of reminds me of another boast we're going to hear from Babylon in a few years, right? When Nebuchadnezzar takes over. And Nebuchadnezzar takes over and he declares, oh, look at this kingdom that I have built. And God says through Daniel the prophet, that's not the kingdom you built, that's the kingdom I gave you. And Nebuchadnezzar just couldn't settle with that. Oh, no, I don't know about that. I'm pretty sure I built this. So God said, I'll show you, right? I'm going to make you crazy for seven years. And then after seven years, you'll still be king. And you'll know. There was nothing you did in those seven years but eat grass like an ox. And let your nails grow out like claws. And your hair like feathers. And in the end, at the end of seven years, right? Nebuchadnezzar says, God gave me this kingdom. (laughs) I didn't do anything. So we have a similar thing going on with Hezekiah. Hezekiah maybe is blown away by the pomp and circumstance, right? Of this giant nation. Have you ever had that person that you really respect and then... They begin to give you some attention and you catch yourself 
trying to play up to what they what you think they're gonna like rather than just really who you are who am I in reality because any of us can fake it for a while but if someone falls in love with the fake us you can't perpetuate that forever right don't you want to know that first <laughs> so we want to get those things out let that be real well this is hezekiah he's he's struggling now here's what god does verse 3 then isaiah the prophet king cape deep 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 isaiah the prophet came to king isaiah try it again isaiah the prophet came to king hezekiah man it's going to be a rough night so when he comes to king hezekiah one of the things that you want to recognize, God had in a plan within the government of Israel that always gave his voice to whoever the king was. Because the prophets couldn't be controlled. Nobody, no, nobody summons Isaiah, right? Isaiah just shows up. Nobody summons Nathan the prophet to David after Bathsheba. He just shows up. Why does he show up? Because God says go. So when you had a true prophet of God, he was directed by God, was not controlled by the king, was not controlled by the priesthood. He was only controlled by God. He was like the ultimate voice for God in no matter what the, the monarchy was. Even when you come to King Ahab, which was a you know, a, a terrible guy. What was it that he said about the prophets? I can't ever get the real prophets to say anything good about me. I think it's important to, to allow the voice of God to happen in your life and not be so focused on the message of the voice of God needs to be supporting whatever I do. That's kind of our world right now. Our world right now is, look, I want to walk in sin and I want you to support it. And if you don't support it, you don't love me. But, but that's, that doesn't equate. That's not what God's word says. God's word says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, but he does not overlook their sin, right? But he's, he, he does love. He has made provision, right? He's made provision for people wherever they are to be able to receive that which God has. But what the world is clamoring for is, I want your approval of me or who I am or how I think. And once I get that approval, then we're okay. And that's where the church comes into collision course with certain worldviews. Because you, you can't give it. Well, I'm not saying you can't give respect that's not hard you can't you can't give uh, common caring or decency sure you can give all those things what you can't give is support because now i'm lining i'm aligning myself in opposition to god and god's prophets never did that if the king was wrong what did the prophet come say you're wrong did the prophet come say, God don't love you no more? Not usually. Most of the time, the prophet came and said, hey, you need to repent. You need to repent. If you don't repent, God will judge you. Is that truth or a lie? 
Is that any different with any of the worldviews in our world today that are at odds with the church right now? Well, I can give you my support and I can say it's all okay, but you're still going to stand before a holy God one day. And what's he going to say? And Ezekiel the prophet charged all other prophets to be a man that would stand on the wall and give warning and say, the enemy's coming, he's going to get you if you don't turn around. So the question always comes back to which is more loving? The one who doesn't care enough and just gives you what you want? Or the one who tells you what you don't want to hear because it's the truth? So Isaiah shows up. God's prophets were always would just show up. They'd show up to Ahab. They'd show up to King David. They'd show up. And then the king is it's hilarious because if you go through first, second Kings, first, second chronicles, and you read the stories, there are the kings going about business as usual, and bam, there's the prophet. And he just says whatever he wants to say. He don't have no fear of the king. Jeremiah, more than one time, Jeremiah show up, bam, in front of the king, and the king throw him in prison. And eventually he'd get out. And then pretty soon, bam, Jeremiah's in front of the king again. And the king throws him in a giant mud puddle. He sinks to his armpits in a, in a mud hole. And they wrench him out and they say, look, we'll stop putting you in jail and we'll stop doing these things to you as soon as you tell us what we want to hear. But Jeremiah said, oh, I'm going to tell you what God said. It's what God says. It's not okay. You need to repent. It's always been the way the world has treated the prophet. It's always been the attitude of the world for the prophet. So Isaiah the prophet comes to King Hezekiah. And he said to him, what did the men say? He's going to ask three, three questions. Three questions, I think. What did the men say? Hezekiah doesn't answer that one. Just in case you didn't notice. He says, what did the men say and from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, they came from afar. That means he skipped the first question, right? What did they say? Well, they came and said, you know, I'm pretty handsome and they think I'm doing a great job and I'm a super king and I don't know what they said. Whatever flattery they brought or whatever lies they told. But Hezekiah is smart enough not to repeat them. Not standing before God's prophet, right? So he said, well, they, they've come from a far country, long country far away, Babylon. Do you guys know the history of Babylon? So Genesis chapter 3, you have the fall of man, right? Adam and Eve, they eat of the fruit, man, the fall of man, man's put outside of Eden. Genesis chapter 6, fallen angels corrupt men. A variety of different ways, but they corrupt men through knowledge. They corrupt men through through uh, contact with these fallen angels. So you have the corruption in Genesis six, Genesis eleven. All mankind is united in one purpose. That one purpose is rebellion against God. You know where that happened? Babylon. So God confused the language. It's called the Tower of. Babel, right? Yeah, that's where it is. 
And so God confused the language and, and that scattered mankind. And what that provided was ma- the disunity of mankind. So man wouldn't again unite under one leader in opposition or rebellion against God. What does that sound like? The world united under one leader in rebellion against God. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? So what happened in Genesis 11 is going to happen again at the end. Right? We talk about this person called Antichrist. Are you guys tracking with me? All the world united behind him in rebellion against God, just like Genesis 11. Where did that all happen? Babylon. In Revelation chapter 18, what, what city does the, the prophet John, as he's talking about the, the wind up to the last battle in Armageddon, what does he call it? The fall of Babylon, Babylon, Babylon is falling, Babylon, Babylon. So here Hezekiah says to the prophet, oh, it's Babylon. It's just this cool new country. They're fun. Everything looks good. Everything is exciting. They had good things to say. They're good people. They're in a place called Babylon. Babylon throughout biblical typology is a type of rebellion against God. All the way through. So they came from Babylon. So he said, Isaiah says, the next question, what have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, well, they've seen everything. I showed them all my cool stuff. I showed them my new cars, my motorcycles, my boat, my skis. I showed them all the things I put together. I showed them the cool house we got. I showed them every, I drove them around and showed them all the cool sights. I showed them everything. And the whole while, who is Hezekiah promoting? To get it? Well, just a chapter ago, you were in bed weeping, God, hear my prayer, remember? And now he lost sight of that, right? Because, because the trust that we put in God is not just something that we do in the trial. It's also something we do in peace when it's good. But sometimes we forget, right? Because really, Hezekiah is no better or worse than us, is he? We're all capable of the same attitudes. We're all capable of making the, the same kind of mistakes as he makes. So he asks the question, they, what have they seen? They saw all that was in my house. There is nothing in all my storehouses I didn't show them. Right? Let me show you the kingdom that I have built. So in this moment in Hezekiah's life, where there was a ready-made opportunity for him to glorify God and talk about all the things God had done, God's deliverance over the 185,000, that was just 37, right? Remember Hezekiah's prayer, save me from Shennacherib. He's going to destroy us, and then God's promise he's never going to come inside. He's not going to set one foot in this city. I'm going to make him go back home before any of the battle happens. And sure enough, there goes Shennacherib back home. And then the angel of the Lord comes through and 185,000 soldiers, gone. 
perfect opportunity to share all of those things. But instead, he wants to prove himself as a worthy partner for a coalition with Babylon. You really want, I really want to partner with you. I really, I really want to be considered. And here's the sad truth. Whatever we trust in that is not God will one day destroy us. He trusts in Babylon. And in a short time, Babylon's going to take it all. So here's what God says in verse 5. So Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried to Babylon. Now, listen, I don't think this is judgment against Hezekiah for what he did. This is God telling Hezekiah the future. Because Hezekiah thinks these guys are the greatest thing since sliced bread. And I really want to impress them. And so God's telling him what's, what's going to happen in the future. In the future, they're going to take it all. They're going to take everything. They're going to take all the gold and silver, all the things that you showed them, all the cool toys, all the cool things that you possess. They're going to come for it all. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Listen to verse 7. And some of your own sons, who will come from you, whom you will father, will be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Now listen, this is kind of an important part. At this point in Hezekiah's life, he has no children. He's about to. But he doesn't have any yet. And God says, some of your own sons, some of the people who come from you now, that word sons doesn't mean, it just means direct descendants. Some of your direct descendants. It's going to be a couple of generations down. It's going to be great, great grandchildren. You probably know one of their names. Who became a eunuch in the house of the king. Young teenage boy. Living at home, part of the royal family. King Babylon came through and said, I want the best. Give me the best. So they took, raided the royal family. The other reason they do that is because now you don't have a rival, right? Because the royal family won't have any heirs. Because when they make you a eunuch, you don't have babies. So they took him and they made him a eunuch. And he served God with all his heart till the day he died. And at least one of them was named Daniel. Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Or Rak, Shak, and Benny, if you do VeggieTales. Right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's their Babylonian names. But their Hebrew names were different. Part of the royal household. Were any of those tied to Hezekiah? I don't, I don't know 
for sure. I just know they're part of the royal lineage. They're part of the royal family. So they're going to be taken away. This is what these guys that you think are so cool, these people that you want to help so bad, this is what they want to do to you. One of the frustrating things, I guess, about being a pastor is all the stories people tell you. There's no shortage of sad tale. And the people who come through with a sad story that want help, want to help them all. Because their stories are all sad. But here's what you don't know. Are they true? Is it real? Because the other unique condition that we all have besides the same weaknesses Hezekiah had we all lie especially when it will support us when it, if it makes me look good I've said before man sometimes I can't catch it before it flips off my tongue that's how quick the lie springs to my mind I have to backpedal back up if I'm going to if I'm going to catch it. So I don't know what's real, what's true, what's not true, what's actual, what's not actual. And there, there's no end of need. So what do we have to do? Who should we rely on? In whom should we trust? God. Well, God will give us discernment, but I also ought to be calling my brothers and sisters to trust who? God. Not a checkbook. Probably not. It's better to trust God. Checkbooks fail. Anybody had their checkbook fail before? (laughs) Mine may be currently failing. I don't know. So when we consider that, the, the word to Hezekiah is God always knows. He says, whatever struggle, I'm bending this a little bit, but bear with me. Whatever struggle, whatever thing we're going through, he makes a mountain pass through it, right? No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But with that temptation, with that test, with that trial, God gives you a mountain pass, a seek, a trail that you can follow through it. Now I can bypass that trail Because I live in America, and I can get money. And most of my problems can be solved with enough of it. Right? Most of them. I mean, some you can't. But most of them, you write a big enough check, they'll go away. But now I'm not trusting in God, right? I'm trusting in Babylon. Trusting in my own independence. God here is looking for Hezekiah to trust in him. In 2 Kings 24, we read the story. It says, Now at that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiakim, that's part of the line of David, the king of Judah... That's a name passing straight through Hezekiah. Gave himself up to the king of Babylon. Himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. 
And the king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house, cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made as the Lord had foretold. He carried away all Jerusalem, all the officials, and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, all the craftsmen, all the smiths, None remained except the poorest people of the land. He carried away Jehoiakim to Babylon, the king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, the chief men of the land. He took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor. 7,000, the craftsmen and metal workers. 1,000, all of them strong and fit for war. And the king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiakim's uncle, king in his place, and changed his name to Zedekiah. So everything God said happened. Everything God told Hezekiah took place. And even though Hezekiah was childless, we read in 2 Kings 21, it says, Now Manasseh, Hezekiah's son, was 12 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. He has the longest reign of any king in Judah. And he was the wickedest king of them all. And he is the single greatest picture I can think of of grace in the Old Testament. Because for 54 years, he's a wretch. And in the end, he gets on track. And God waited 55 years. Could have took him out any time. And the consequences of his wickedness still came. They still went into captivity of Babylon as a result of Manasseh's wickedness. God says so. But as we look at it, the... If, if Hezekiah hadn't asked for extra time, Manasseh wouldn't have been born. If Manasseh wouldn't have been born, the single greatest picture of grace in the Old Testament, you wouldn't have. The wickedest king of all, you wouldn't have either. Is it good or bad that the farmer got a horse? That the son broke his leg? All I know is exactly what God had ordained has taken place. We see it scrolling out before us on the pages of Scripture. Now look what Hezekiah says. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken to me is good. Well, that's nice, king. I, that's not required. <laughs> you don't have to declare it good. God said it. That's what's going to happen. But I think it's probably a statement of accepting Right? Okay. I'm going to accept that. That's God's will. I mean, that's what God's going to do. So I'm, I'm going to accept what God has said. I think that's a positive. But I'm not sure about the next statement. You see the next one? The next statement, he says, The word of the Lord that has been spoken is good, for he thought. He didn't say this. For he thought. At least there will be peace and security in my days. Wow. 
You remember last week when he was going to die? How did he feel about that? It seemed pretty impassioned prayer, right? He's weeping, he's crying, he's calling on the Lord's name. How does he feel when somebody else is going to die? At least it's not me. And again, this is not to point at Hezekiah and say, look how messed up he was. Oh no. Every one of us can put his shoes on. Every one of us at one time or another has had that. We've seen something happen or heard of something happening and we're just happy it didn't happen to me or to us, to my family or in our town or whatever the things are we look at and we think, at least it it didn't happen to me. And when I think about that, it's a perfect introduction to chapters 40 to 66. Because the question that we're going to be answering now as we take a look at it, the question that we're going to be answering is, look, when we, when we look at this people, this sinful, this, this congenital defect in mankind, Right, that we all have, we're rebellious, we have struggles with wickedness, being distrustful. How are they going to become servants of God? How are they ever going to enter into a place where they trust God? I mean, even Hezekiah, who did pretty good, has some blatant failures in his life. What about David? David, who's pretty good, has some blatant failures in his life, right? Most of the heroes we look at, well, they're pretty good, but they have what? Some blatant failures in their life. How are these messed up people ever going to become the servants of God? So the question is being laid out. How do we get human beings to trust God? To trust Him like they need to trust Him? And if Trusting God is the basis of our servanthood. What is it that's going to motivate us to trust God? And what about God's holy character? What about human sinfulness? How are we going to reconcile the the sinfulness of mankind? Can they be reconciled? Can the sinfulness of mankind be reconciled with the holy God? Are we just going to ignore the conflict? Are we going to pretend it's not there? Is there any solution to the problem? How can sinful, rebellious man become holy, submissive man? How can he trust God? That's what chapters 40 to 66 answer. And chapters 40 to 66 is a microcosm of Chapter 6 in Isaiah. God's ability to purge the sin of man and empower man to be his servant. And we'll see that as we continue our journey through the book of Isaiah. Amen? Once you stand with me, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time. We come before you. We open your word tonight and study through this book. God, I pray that we can come to understand the the lessons that you're laying out for us, so we can lay hold of the things that are important and valuable, that we can 
wrap our hands around it. Just really say, I grasp the idea. I see. I see the picture of a rebellion of man from the beginning all the way to the end. And so Isaiah is giving us this bird's eye view of of this in, in terms of the nation of Israel. But if we back up, we can see it in terms of all mankind from Genesis to Revelation. Rebellion against God, distrust of God, hatred of God is going to lead all mankind to stand in a horrible place, judgment at the great white throne. But God didn't leave us that way. No, he, he sent himself. He said, I looked around for someone to stand in the gap. I saw no one, so I saved him. That the arm of salvation, the Lord's arm of salvation is not short. That he can't save. So scripture teaches us that God became the suffering servant. So that he could take the iniquity of mankind upon himself. And then in his resurrection, bestow mankind with the power to be the men and women God's calling us to be all laid out for us in the book of Isaiah so God open our eyes open our ears help us take the blinders off and just look deeply into the mirror of the word of God and recognize that the face I see looking back at me is mine that's really how I look but you love me anyway That's really how I am. But you love me enough not to leave me that way. And you say, if I'll trust you, you will transform me. So God, we trust you. Do that work whereby you turn us into a new creation created in Christ Jesus our Lord that we can celebrate even with the voice of the prophet who says our God is able so Lord we thank you for your word laid out for us God I pray that we lay hold of it and make it our own we give you praise for it in Jesus name Amen